0: Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a Senior Fellow in Policy and Communications here at the King's Fund. Today, I'm honoured to be joined by Poppy Jarman, co-founder and Chief Executive of City Mental Health Alliance, and previously the founding Chief Executive of Mental Health First Aid England, and also currently a non-executive director at Public Health England. Poppy, welcome to the King's Fun podcast. Hi, Helen.
1: Thank you very much for the welcome.
0: So in a minute, we're going to get on to questions around your leadership style and also your work on mental health in the workplace. But first, to kick off, you may have seen in the news recently that the Wellcome Trust has decided to trial having a four-day working week. If you had an extra day each week to spend having fun, and if money was no object, what would you do?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So my passion and hobby is I'm a sari enthusiast. So I have the most amazing and enormous collection of (laughs) saris that go back to my teenage days when my mum started buying me them. And in the last sort of year or two, I've really got into um, pan loom saris. So actually holding up the artisan community in Bangladesh and India, the village community who create saris using traditional methods, now I will only buy saris from the communities and and know that actually what the print is and how they created Mm. the dye, etc. So I would probably grow my sari collection <laughs> twofold and be really skid <laughs> <laughs> if I if I had another day. That's what I do. And I just, you know, and I love wearing them and I'd so I'm part of a hundred thousand women who are professional professional women who are all going back to the sari worldwide. Mm-hmm. So we've got a group where we connect with each other and share with the last time we wore a sari at a conference or a work thing. Nice. So moving back to I guess a lot of us uh, Asian women in the professional world sort of did the whole, we, we need to assimilate. Mm-hmm. So adopted the trousers mm-hmm. and the skirt and the suits in order to fit in. And actually we're now going back to, let's bring back the sari to work and, and do what our mothers and grandmothers did, which wore them when they did everything. Yeah. From wallpapering in my mother's case to my grandmother's sort of gardening and growing things. So that's what I do.
0: That sounds fantastic. So let's go into a little bit around what you're doing now. Can you tell us a bit about your career so far? How did you get to where you are today?
1: My mental health career started as a community development worker in Portsmouth, working in a local authority, Mm. which became a primary care trust. So I was working for the NHS. And then I was working for the Department of Health, where I was leading on race equality and mental health. So that was Mm -hmm. my real first big programme of work, an introduction to driving change through businesses, so business transformation, organizational transformation through change. Mm -hmm. Then I had the enormous privilege of taking Mental Health First Aid, which we founded and created within an organisation called the National Institute for Mental Health in England, which was sat within the Department of Health. And I had the opportunity to take that out of DH and set it up as a social enterprise. So then I have the 10-year experience of the third sector Mm. and being a social entrepreneur and actually working out how we navigate that world and bridge being a very social purpose-driven company Mm. And business, so that was that. That was really pioneering and really fun. And then I left that organisation last May. But while I was within City Mental Health Alliance six years ago, I got involved with a number of corporate leaders, business leaders in in the financial and professional services sector, who wanted to address the issue of mental health stress in the city amongst its employees. And I helped set up the City Mental Health Alliance. And now I lead that organization. So I feel like I've had the enormous privilege of working in the statutory sector, the third sector, Mm -hmm. and now with a lot of sort of corporate organizations and and globally increasingly as well over the last few years. So the range has been good. Yeah, Yeah. massive range, it feels like. And
0: I I guess it means you can bring so much knowledge and expertise from those sectors in to bear on the new ones that you join.
1: Yeah, I think one of the yeah, I think definitely. So when I was working at DH, I used to say to people, you know, one of the benefits of being a community development worker was that I always held the community and the individual at, at heart. And then sort of in the in in mental health first aid, people that bought the mental health first aid courses and run them as programs. There's 350,000 people, mental health first aiders in England, and it's the leading mental health training organization in England. It's a real success story, but the success comes from the fact that the people that got behind mental health first aid and bought the services, there's statutory sector, Mm. voluntary sector, um, you know, mind Something like 60% of local minds deliver mental health first aid. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's a great partnership, but it's also a good working together. Then you've got businesses like EY, PWC, Deloitte, yeah. the big four rolling out mental health first aid. So I think the benefit of having sort of worked in different sectors for me, but with a single purpose, mental health, is meant that I've, I can look at things from different angles. And I love that.
0: Yeah. And just in terms of the city, now you're working with City Mental Health Alliance. Do you feel, having worked across different sectors, that the city has a particular, has come from a place where it has a particular problem in terms of employees being able to talk about mental health? Or do you think this problem is actually much more widespread across all sectors and people generally struggle?
1: Yeah, I think the the problem is global problem. Every 40 seconds somebody dies by suicide somewhere in the world. In the next 20 years mental ill ill health or mental health issues is going to be the biggest cause of disability worldwide. So we've got an issue around mental health and mental illness that's a global agenda and then it presents itself in every part of society whether it's me as a parent whether it's me as a colleague whether it's me as just part member of my community if i look at the world through the mental health lens there's a lot of work to do yeah and i think with the city mental health alliance i mean it's a fantastic organization driving change and leading change in the workplace and The purpose came from, we have got a lot of stress in the city, we have got people that have died by suicide, Mm -hmm. and we want to address this, but we don't know how to address it. And in the beginning, in the early days, when we started six years ago, there was literally nobody that, that was an employee of the city that was willing to come forward and tell their story.
0: How important do you think it is for senior leaders who've had personal experience of of their own mental health issues to share their stories with staff?
1: I think it's really important to lead by example. And everybody's got a story. So whether your story is one like Brian Hayworth, who's the vice chair of the City Mental Health Alliance, or Pete Rogers, who's the founding chairman of City Mental Health Alliance, one of their own personal experiences of mental health issues... Whether it's that or whether it's actually we know someone or I have no personal experience, but I know that actually I need to openly as a leader talk about mental health and well-being Mm -hmm. being integral to the values of my business because we are here taking the duty of care for our people beyond the minimum that we can do actually yeah. we want to attract retain and grow talent because businesses are made up of people and in order to do that i need to be publicly saying as a leader that this mental health and wellbeing is good for business so i think it's critical that leaders step up and step into this space and tell the story of mental health being a positive thing for the business mm. and And also being educated enough to understand that we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. Mental illness is something that we may or may not get, and we can do things to prevent it, support people that are going through it, and help people recover. But it's a part of
0: everyday life, and it shouldn't be ignored just the same as other bits of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked about your career so far, and it sounds like you started in mental health can you tell me why mental health
1: yeah do you know it it was it was a bit of an accident I didn't I didn't ever sort of leave school and think I'm going to um, work in mental health but I I was always curious as to emotions emotional reactions how people behave, mood, and and I think that stems very much back to my own childhood. So, I would say that members of my family, close members of my family, have had me- you know, significant mental health issues. And actually, from an early age, I ima- there was there was there was long periods of time where I was sort of have had caring responsibilities as a result of yeah. mental health issues in the in the family. And then I myself in my early 20s was, depre- um, was depressed, was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And it came in the form of postnatal depression. But actually, looking back, it probably started much earlier and it would have been a direct result of adverse childhood events, which we know yeah. is is synonymous with mental health, you know, is a good predictor mm. for mental health issues. So... I I think, you know, um, you know that, that whole, so you don't know why you're doing things, but reflection is a, hindsight is a great thing. So I think actually my personal experiences was probably, was a big driver in how I've ended up working in mental health. The lack of education and understanding and knowledge I experienced, you know, 20 years ago now, created a passion for educating so that I guess we disrupted the system, mm. the whole Mental health. I really see mental health first aid and and the city mental health alliance coming along and disrupting the system. Let me just explain what I mean by that. So before mental health first aid came along, all the language around mental health was mental illness orientated and it was very clinical and it was very jargonistic. And I remember sort of in the early days of reading stuff and thinking, I have no idea what any of this means, let alone being able to then use documents to then talk to my family about it and being a bilingual family and mm-hmm. my, my parents sort of would particularly my mum would have needed it explaining in bengali you know it was just it was difficult so i think those things those experiences changed to a driver for creating change so when mental health first aid came along and started to educate anybody and everybody in mental health people were like is this safe And interestingly, it was the clinicians, actually, that were quite protective of this space, because obviously, you know, here's an organization claiming that we're going to teach just average person to have a mental health conversation and signpost. I mean, is that
0: dangerous? Where's the clinical evidence for it? but the counterfactual is no conversation. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And you know, at times I doubted, you know, at times it did make me go, god, you know, am I do- are we doing the right thing? Is mm. it safe are we going to trigger people? But my instincts were everybody should be able to have a conversation about mental health, right? Everybody should be able to do that. And that's all we're doing. Yeah. And here we are. Mental Health First Aid being a leading organization in the country and in fact there was a parliamentary debate on first aid for mental health becoming mandatory alongside First Aid for Physical Health, which I'm you know, i chuffed to bits with because that piece of work started a number of years ago. Mm. And you know, it, it was a real proud moment to, to, to see Simon Blake, the CEO of Mental Health First Aid on TV, talking about it. It was like, wow, look at how far we've come. So we've disrupted the system and we've actually yeah. changed
0: how- And potentially made it status quo. Disrupted yeah. the system yeah. to make it part of yeah. the system, yeah. which is- Which yeah, is amazing. amazing. Amazing, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So people talk a lot about this concept of parity of esteem between mental and physical health. Where do you think we are on the journey towards achieving that? Are we close? So first of all, I've got to say parity of esteem.
1: So I look at mental health now as a global issue. Mm. And parity of esteem, that term, doesn't really mean anything outside of the UK and it goes back to 2011 when the previous government released the mental health report, no health without mental health. That's where it was first cited. So I think, you know, as I said to you earlier, you know, it, language is really important. Yeah. So we need to be making sure that we're using language like equality for mental health. Let's just really talk about what it is as opposed to these terms. So that's my little rant about parity of esteem. I'll park that now. So, so on so, progress towards equality yeah, so for mental health. so progress towards equality for mental health. Um. So let me just put myself like, so I'm, you know, I've, I've already shared that I've had my own experience of mental health mm-hmm. issues, but my, my youngest daughter, who's 18, has also um, in the last year got a diagnosis of anxiety. So if I put myself in the lived experience hat mm-hmm. and look at it through the lens of somebody that's experienced mental health issues and also the mother of somebody that's, that's got um, a diagnosis of anxiety, what do I worry about? So I worry when she a- approaches the working world, will her opportunities be equal to her peers? What will workplaces look like for her? And will her workplace be a place which adds to her stresses? Or would it be a place that actually creates an environment where she will be able to flourish?
0: Yeah you've worked for many years now around the role of employers in mental health what's your view on the role of employers in health more broadly and what they should be doing in order to keep us well is that should that be a a big part of what an employer uh, does
1: yeah absolutely we spend a lot of time at work Mm. And I think, if you look at what the younger generation wants, long gone is that kind of I go to work, I leave my life at the door, i uh, I earn income, I provide for my family the nine to five. yeah, the nine yeah. to five and and also, and then I go on holiday a couple of times a week, and that's the year, and that's a family holi- that's the family time. actually, we want a more integrated life, you know, we're calling for men to be more part of the family life. Yeah. Men want to do that. So we're, we're seeing a societal shift and workplaces need to accommodate that. And I think they are. I think they're beginning to create that change. But I think we've still got long working hours culture in some sectors. We're still not seeing the fact that productivity, working longer and harder, isn't equal to being productive mm-hmm. actually it's quite the reverse if you if you if you look after people and nurture people mm-hmm. they'll give their best while they're at work and and we want people to bring their best thinking to work so i think business successful businesses are going to have to be agile family friendly caring, responsibility-friendly. And so going back to your your where we started, leadership, if the leader goes home at 6 o'clock, then it almost kind of gives everybody in that culture mm. to go home. So, so I think workplaces have to adapt and yeah. evolve because otherwise they're not going to have the talent that they need. And we don't need to be in an office to do most jobs um, in,
0: in the yeah. Western world anymore. So you touched on leadership just then, and that is something I really want to talk to you about, because obviously you've achieved huge amounts in your career. How would you describe your leadership style and what has shaped it?
1: I never set out to be a leader, is the first thing that I would say, because on a subconscious level, when I looked around me as a young woman, people that look like me weren't in leadership positions. You know. Short Bangladeshi women are a rare, rare find in the leadership circuits in, in the UK and in London. So I would say that my leadership style is very much around developing a network, supporting people to progress. So I think it's it's closely aligned to servant leadership. Okay. But I also take a lot of pride in leading by example. Mm. So living and breathing what I am Talking about but I enjoy setting and facilitating and creating the space for people to step in and and build that's what
0: I like to do that sounds like a kind of facilitative empowering leadership style Mm. and how do you look after yourself as a leader because I know you're a senior leader you're also a mother and I'm sure you have other personal commitments how do you fit all those in and keep yourself well
1: yeah, so I wouldn't say that I'm a I'm the best example <laughs> of keeping myself well over the over the years, and I think one of the things that I really recognise is that work has been an integral part of my recovery journey. Right, work has given me purpose. It's given me financial health in order to be able to look after my family. As, yeah. the, as the person that has always been the main income, the person that pays the mortgage and, and the bills for, for the majority of my career. So I think financial health is critical. But work has also given me my networks and where I draw my energy from. And particularly in the early days of mental health issues, I really turned to work for structure as well. So when you approach a job and a work with that level of dependency on it for your health and well-being. As I've got older, it's um, it's certainly, I've had to really take a hard look at myself and go, right, what else are you doing? Because you probably don't need work to be such a big part of your health and well-being. Mm. So what do I do? I um, do hot yoga once a week. I do weight-bearing exercises a couple of times a week. I, I actively seek time out to see my friends and it's very well known for me to post random postcards on the post to my mates just because I've thought about them so it's connecting and staying connected yeah. to people once a year I'll always do a weekend or something with my daughters particularly as they've got older that's been really important we just go away and we have us time mm-hmm. so you know my personal relationships are really important to me staying connected and then and then exercise and health is really important to me downtimes Yeah, yeah, and consciously doing that. But it sounds
0: like work is also a really important part of your identity.
1: Yeah, 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 it is, and I do worry about, like, I'm, I'm already worried about sort of retirement and what (laughs) what that's going to look like because actually, it's purpose more than work. Because my jobs, I'm so lucky that I've chosen jobs or fallen into jobs that have got
0: so much purpose well it's aligned with your values and you're driving those towards. so they're kind of in some ways inextricable yeah so it
1: doesn't feel like work if that makes sense so which is the best kind of job to have yeah absolutely (laughs) i feel very lucky so actually i need to that's probably why i'm building up the sari
0: network that's what i'm (laughs) going to do next yeah yeah Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and tell me who or what has been the greatest influence on your career I think I couldn't say that there was any one
1: person, there have been a number of people, so For me, I've had a number of mentors over my career and they've usually come in the form of bosses or chief executives of the organisations that I worked with. So when I was in Portsmouth and thinking about going for the race equality job in London and national, and it was going to be a regional job based in, I think it was Guildford at the time, the chief executive of the then Portsmouth NHS Portsmouth Primary Care Trust, Sheila Clark had a chat with me and was Mm -hmm. like, well, of course you should do this. And I was a bit like, well, you know, I don't have any qualifications. And then my next boss, Judy, really supported me and the chief executive or the director of the organisation supported me to go and do an MBA and build up my qualifications. And their words were, you're really good. And, you know, at the time I was overseeing a massive budget and a regional programme, you're really good, but your CV doesn't reflect that. Mm. And I'd left school with just, well, well, I say some very good GCSEs, but I didn't do A-levels, I didn't do a first degree. So it's been people like that at different points in my career who've nudged me forward and gone, of course you can. So I've just had a collection of amazing people that have looked after me, and I think we we all need those. And I think... Being a BAME woman, the disadvantages are stuck up against you. So we need people and leaders to actually level the playing field. Yeah. And it's not about giving me something more than somebody else. It's about recognizing the fact that I need something different. Yeah. I would have never thought about going on a leadership program or, or, or doing an MBA because that was never in my frame of reference mm. 'cause there were no role models.
0: People that you could yeah. look up to that. Yeah. It wasn't or felt my like pathway. You. I was yeah.
1: supposed to be a married woman and and a housewife nurturing a family. That's how my family brought me up. I wasn't brought up to be a global leader on mental health. So it was people in my career that went, Yeah, of course you can and this that's what you need to do and you know, no one person but a collection of people that I will always hold gratitude for in my heart.
0: You've talked about feeling different and feeling disadvantaged as you were starting out and you've mentioned earlier on about the kind of feeling that you didn't fit in, kind of trying to, I guess, conform with the right clothing and now you're kind of wearing saris and enjoying that and and that kind of being a, a trajectory of change for you. I guess my question for you would be what advice would you give to young women young BAME women who are starting out, who may feel like you did when you were starting out, what would you tell them to inspire and encourage them now?
1: A couple of things. So first of all, I would say, this was a great bit of advice that was given to me many years ago. If you look at a job description, and you can do 60% of it, you need to go for it because actually the other 40% is the bit that you have the discussion at interview in your application form about the growth. Why would you do a job that you can already do? Where's yeah. the learning in that? And we know that we need to be motivated by development. Yeah. And and actually BAME women will, you know, I know, I know many women and friends who have got three four degrees because they want to continue to build their academic qualifications because they want to be the perfect on paper Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. actually that's not true so the second thing linked to that is when you think you need another degree or another (laughs) qualification just pause and think about it and think about going on a leadership program you know I've I've been very lucky to experience I think I've done two maybe three but I've also designed a couple and they are amazing because actually you get to have an insight in your personality and how you're presenting and how you're connecting in a way that you never would. So get yourself in a good leadership program, not another degree. Unless, of course, that's exactly... You want to do a degree and it's an area <laughs> of interest. But it's not career progression. Is about sometimes we get stuck yeah. with our own self-stigma. And, and we, we need, need unlocking... Absolutely. And then the third thing is mentors and coaches. You know, we often think that actually we need a mentoring scheme that we need to go on. And it's Mm. a formal thing. And it's within our business. And we meet with a mentor every month. They're great. But actually, I think what's more great is developing a network of people that you respect, elders, Mm. youngers, different fields, sit down, and run it like a project. Make a list of the people that you respect and that you want to learn from and the authors that you, that inspire you. Connect with them through social media. Invite people out for a cup of tea. Seek their advice and manage those relationships. Some of the people that I look up to, I might only see once a year. But I manage those networks. And and, and that sounds calculated, but it's not. It's because I really respect their work and I'm learning from them. So mentoring can be a very informal but a very fruitful Mm. way of getting you connected to the places and the spaces that you want to connect with. And managing your networks is is an
0: art. So get good at it. So that sounds like invaluable advice, Poppy. And you touched on leadership courses. I think I'm duty bound to say that the King's Fund offers a whole range of leadership courses that are available on our website for more details. So please take a look. On that note, Poppy, with such fantastic advice to people starting out on their career, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash kfpodcast. Thanks for listening and thanks to our podcast team. I'm Helen McKenna and thanks as always to our producers Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. We'd really love to know what you think and what you'd like to hear more about. So please tell us by leaving a review on iTunes or get in touch either on Twitter, at The King's Fund, or my account, at Helena Macarena. Hope you can join us next time.